Good afternoon, church. It is a good Friday, is it not? Oh, amen. It is a good Friday. Um, for this Good Friday service, uh, we're going to do something a little unconventional. Uh, instead of just listening to me talk or listening to Pastor Rob talk uh, for, for the entire time, we're actually going to give you guys uh, seven sermons. Yeah. Ooh. Seven short ones, I promise. Uh, what we really want to do in order to remember our Savior and remember this day that, uh, that Christ has has made for us and the reason why we celebrate, we are going to be endeavoring to go through the seven last statements of our Savior on the cross. He had seven statements as he was hanging there with nails in his wrists, as he was watching people scoff and laugh at him, as he was ready to take on the entirety of our sin. He said a few things. And I think to truly remember this Good Friday, we, we need to truly remember how our Savior felt and what he was saying and, and, and what he was doing, even and how he was ministering, even on the cross. As if forgiving us our sins and, and taking on the sins of humanity was enough, he actually ministers to us and preaches to us on the cross. And so myself and, and, and six other uh, men here, we are going to be uh, going through the last seven statements of Jesus. And so we're going to have uh, the scripture up here, or if you have your Bibles, the first one is going to be in Luke chapter 23. We have it up here because you guys are going to be flipping so much that uh, we figured we'd make it easy for you. Uh, but the first one here is in, in, is in Luke chapter 23. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the school, they crucified him. And the criminals, uh, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. It's very interesting. It says, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is indeed the Christ. I find it very interesting. You see, we, we just sang that beautiful hymn. I, ashamed I hear my mocking voice called out among the scoffers. Do we know what that means? When we sing that hymn, how great the Father's love for us. When we recognize a shame, I hear my mocking voice called among the scoffers. You see, guys, we must recognize something. It is my sin. It is my sin that put him on the cross. My sin that put him on the cross. And it is my sin that looks at him. And mocks him. Mocks him. But what a loving Savior that he would say, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Remembering the character of our Christ. Even on the cross. As our sin was holding him there. As he was taking it for us. We, we are the ones that are making him the victim. We are the ones 
ladies and gentlemen, we are the ones crucifying him with our sin. But even then, he would be hanging there, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this statement, we need to remember that our Christ, our Christ, is a Christ of forgiveness. And though it is our shame, it is to our shame that we would mock him with our sin, he is always, always, even in pain, even in suffering, willing to forgive you and I for what we have done. Amen? Amen. This is good news. This is good news. Luke 23, 39 through 43 is the scripture I'm going to go through. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why did Jesus use the word paradise? Paradise. Why not just heaven? You know, I think there was one moment in time that Jesus just couldn't stop thinking about. He couldn't get it out of his head. And this wasn't a moment during his earthly ministry. You see, when we're studying Christ and his life, we have to realize that the God in Luke hanging on the cross is the same God that created the heavens and the earth. The God... And Luke hanging on the cross is the same God that dwelled with man unhindered by sin in paradise, in the garden. The God hanging on a cross in Luke is the same God in Genesis 3 that drove his children, drove Adam and Eve out of paradise, out of the garden because of their sin that now separated them. You see, from Genesis 3 to Luke 23, God has been constantly, consistently pursuing man. Thousands of years of heartache and betrayal and sin, Christ desiring to one day dwell with his children unhindered by sin. The statement from Jesus to the criminal had been anticipated since the moment that he drove Adam and Eve out of paradise, out of the garden. And here on the cross, at the culmination of God's amazing cosmic rescue mission, this being the joy that was set before him, this being the reason he endured the cross, God looks sinful man, terrible sinful man, in the eyes and says, finally, gosh, I waited thousands and thousands of years, but finally, today, you will be with me again. In paradise. What it meant for Jesus to say that. To be able to finally say that. 
Romans 5.12 reads, Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. A lot of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry was spent doing two things. The first one, he spent much of his ministry um, redefining what religion was. There's a lot of false definitions that the, the Jewish culture had uh, contrived regarding what God saw as pure religion, what God saw as religion that was pleasing to him. And for much of Jesus' ministry, it was a matter of um, you know a lot of confrontations with the Pharisees and Redefining what it, what really religion is. Um, I think a great example of this is John chapter 5 uh, at the pool of Bethesda where Jesus sees um, the lame man and uh, he goes up to him and he heals him. And uh, the Pharisees' first concern is, it's the Sabbath. How can you heal on the Sabbath? And at that moment, Jesus is redefining what, what religion is. It's not holding to a law. It's caring for the broken. It's healing the sick. It's healing the blind. <clears throat> I think that's so powerful that Jesus exemplified that for us. And, and James 1.27 says that pure religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And even on the cross, Jesus had this, this reformation in mind that he cared for his mother and his disciples so much that they're on his mind on the cross. At the very last thing, Jesus wanted to make sure that his mother was cared for. He wanted to make sure that his disciples were cared for. Religion, I would submit to you, is being a caretaker. That you no longer have to go to a priest to, uh, or the high priest in the Jewish culture um, to speak to God. Or um, you no longer have to, to go through someone else to care for people. Jesus now says, you are the priest. You are the pastor. You minister to them. You care for them. And the second thing I believe Jesus did on his earthly ministry um, was exemplified, excuse me, exemplified for us what his, what his servant looks like. And uh, John 13, 14 through 17, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he says this, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. Or sorry, that's just 15. Uh, chapter 13. Verse 14 says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was the perfect caretaker. Jesus was the perfect servant. And on the cross, he was saying to us, this is your mission. You are now a caretaker of the body of Christ. You are now a caretaker of the widows and orphans. And I love that that was on Jesus' mind. He wanted to be an example to us. Even his last breaths, he wanted to be an example to us of what religion, what a servant looks like. It's a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ. That he cares for his kids so much that he wants to teach us how to love each other. Even his last moments, you were on Jesus' mind. I was on Jesus' mind. Just as Micah said before that as he was on the cross, just that beautiful picture of Jesus thinking, I get to be with you in paradise. I get to be with this, this thief forever in paradise. We were on Jesus' mind on the cross. He loved us that much. What a beautiful song, just how deep the Father's love for us. So we can praise the Lord that he's cared for us and that he's loved us and that he is the perfect caretaker and the perfect servant. seven final statements on the cross, reading from Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 33. And it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For me, one of the, the most memorable lines that, that Jesus will speak out, definitely the one that I hear quoted the most, and we see as, as we enter into the sixth hour, as Jesus hangs on the cross, darkness consumes the land. Many historians saying that there was a, a full solar eclipse, but we know from history at the time of the Passover was always held at a full moon. It was impossible for this to occur. And so we see that this heralding in of darkness was something beyond earth. And for Jesus, what this signified, that, that from this point, everything before Jesus had endured, Everything before that Jesus had experienced was simply what man was inflicting on Jesus. The beatings, the ripping of his beard, the crown of thorns. This is what man could muster up for Jesus to, to endure. But at this moment, at this moment of darkness, Jesus experiences something far worse. Jesus, on the cross, becomes sin. And at this moment, God pours out his wrath on him. And so for Jesus... He experiences this on a deeper level than we can even understand because Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, right, has an eternity with the Father broken. He feels this separation. And so him, 100% God, an eternity with his Father has been broken for our sins. But 100% man, he feels every drop of wrath in the Father's cup that we deserved poured out on him. And it's so important that we understand the sacrifice that Jesus made. Because he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Right? And, and it seems crazy that the Father could forsake anyone because he's so faithful. But we see in 2 Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. And so Jesus didn't deserve 
what he received on the cross. And so he righteously feels that he's lost something that he deserved. But we also see in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Father to bruise him. See, Jesus, when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he's quoting from Psalm 22. And in this psalm, we see David writing of the agony of the crucifixion of the Messiah. But we also see the victory that comes from it. And Jesus knows this all too well. And so it's fitting for us to remember that as Jesus endures the pain on the cross, he knew full well what it meant. That it was our sin, our scoffing, that nailed him to the cross. That we cried, crucify him. But he willingly took it. Everything that the Father poured out for our sins, past, present, and future. And so on this Good Friday, on this Good Friday, it is important for us to understand the true sacrifice Jesus made. It wasn't the beatings that broke Jesus' heart. It wasn't the crown of thorns. That's not what Jesus asked for to be removed when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he said, Father, take this cup, that cup of wrath. So let's rejoice that Jesus has taken that for us. That Jesus has endured the ultimate sacrifice, the wrath on the cross, and the darkness that swept over him no longer surrounds us. That we are freed in what Jesus did. That Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we never have to. John 19, verses 28 through 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now you may say, what's the deep spiritual meaning behind this? I thirst, this statement, I thirst. What's the the deep spiritual meaning of this, Pastor Mark? There isn't one. There simply isn't one. As Chris mentioned... To be sure, that was 100% God hanging from the cross. But that was also 100% man. And it's it's in the early part of, of Christianity that the first attack on Jesus was actually not an attack on his deity in the earliest church. It was actually the attack on his manhood. On his humanity. And this was 100% God, but this was 100% man who said... I thirst, and I would submit to you, this is the only exclusively human statement that Jesus made from the cross. I thirst. See, the night before, he pulled an all-nighter. No sleep. Praying in the garden. Sweating as though blood. It's a medical condition known as hematidrosis, which left the skin incredibly sensitive. He was taken away by guards. He was scourged. 
Two bodyguards would whip him with cat of nine tails. It's a handle with leather strips, iron balls, metal hooks. We're not talking about standard level skin lacerations. We're talking about lacerations that went so deep into the subcutaneous tissue. History had recorded some men lost ribs during the scourging. He was beaten, sucker punched, suffered bruising on, on his face. His heart began to work hard to try to repair all the damage. They put a crown of thorns on his head. He was literally bleeding from head to toe. And his heart had to begin working overtime to keep up. And so he was beaten. He walked the Via Dolorosa, which you can go to today, carrying about a 100-pound crossbar of a cross strapped to it, so heavy, so fatigued that he fell with no way to brace himself. Jesus suffered a deep contusion of his heart likely an aortic aneurysm, as his heart began to swell and work overtime. Then he was crucified, five to seven inch square shaped nails driven through his wrists and his feet, through some of the most sensitive nerves in the body. He hung from a cross. Every time he pulled himself up, he would scrape the same wounds that came from the scourging along that used and abused slab of wood. He was going into cardiogenic shock. Jesus' heart was physically and spiritually breaking. His body was out of resources. Where he had refused a drink earlier in the crucifixion, he accepted it this time. Likely because his tongue did not work anymore. He was so dehydrated, his tongue stuck to his cheek, his lips stuck together. He likely had to pull them apart. Jesus took one last drink on earth. And archaeology has uncovered the same sort of stick and sponge was used near the crucifixion sites where they would also have public bathrooms. And that same stick and sponge and sour wine was used as a disinfectant for the servants to scrub those using the bathroom. And the last thing that Jesus tasted on earth was that sponge. As he was drinking of the cup of God's wrath, that was the last thing that humanity had to offer Jesus. Was that sponge. And Jesus drank of it. He had two more things to say. As God was pouring out his fury... See, Jesus physically dying on the cross is not what saved you from your sin. The wrath of God being poured out on Jesus on the cross is what saves you from your sin. This was one more drink on earth. It certainly was a bad Friday for Jesus, which is what makes it a good Friday for us. One of the last statements that Jesus said is in John 19, verse 30. He said, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now guys, it is finished wasn't just breathed as a sigh of relief. No, it is finished wasn't just said in reflection or uttered by Jesus in reflection that all of his works and all of his mission were finally over. No. You guys see, it is finished. 
is the ultimate triumphal war cry shouted from our almighty sovereign leader, Captain Christ Jesus. It is finished. It's what he proclaimed when he took on all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our ugliness, and all of our deaths. Everything acting as an unforgiving barrier, keeping us from God. It is finished. It's what he cried as he took those all and forgave them and nailed them on the cross. It is finished. It's what he celebrated as I took on the death sentence that we deserved. Took on God's wrath that we ultimately deserved. But we never received because of Christ's love that we never deserved. It is finished. It's what he proclaimed as he crushed the serpent. Bruising his head and defeating the once rising hopes of hell. And putting them down in the pits where they shall stay. You guys see, it is finished is what he said. And it is finished is what we believe. It's the ultimate comfort and promise and seal and encouragement that our Christ Jesus succeeded on his conquest of love and redemption. Guys, we should be shouting this as a congregation. Come on, let's try it. It is finished. Say it with me as praise of God. It is finished. Yeah, let's say it louder, guys, because it is true. It is finished. Yes, thank you, guys, because I don't want to just be yelling at you guys. We should be yelling together. But, guys, we know what this means. Our sin is forgiven, and we are saved. But like I was once told, we aren't just saved from something, we are saved to something. You guys, see, our sin is lifted, and that veil is torn. We can once again have that connection with our Abba Father. We can spend everlasting, everlasting life with our God. But though His works and mission may have been accomplished when He said, It is finished, our mission here on earth is just beginning. Though his life may have ended when he was nailed onto that cross, our life with him has just begun. Though God has ultimately victoriously won the war, the enemy isn't going down without a fight. He's not going to go down quietly. So now it's our turn because rather sin is killing us or we are killing it. Now I know you guys know the words. I've heard you guys already shout it three times or whatever. You guys know the words. It is finished. But now what's stopping us from believing that? What's stopping that? From letting it affect our lives truly. Because guys, there should be no more room for this bitterness in our heart. There should be no more room for these pleasure sins. Because guys, ultimately our victory and comfort is in Christ Jesus. We should be no more saying, just this one last time. We should be no more saying, just this once. No more saying, oh I swear to God I'll never do that again. Because now new words of victory are on our heart. And it is finished. Because Jesus Christ uh, it reigns and sin is dead. Jesus bruised the serpent's head and now we will triumphantly trample over that serpent. Because one last time together as a congregation, it is finished. Praise Jesus' final words come in Luke 23. Verses 45 and 46. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The Romans had used crucifixion for hundreds and hundreds of other deaths, but no death was like this one. Ever. Consider the contrast of Jesus' birth. He was born under a star with angels singing his arrival. 
He died under supernatural darkness, utterly alone. Isaiah 53 tells us that God laid on him our iniquity. And the physical world mirrored this spiritual gloom that had fallen on Jesus. Physically also, the temple veil was torn in two. Hebrews tells us that Jesus' body was that veil. And it was torn so that you and I could see God face to face. We know from Josephus that that veil was 60 feet tall and 4 inches thick. That horses tied to each side couldn't tear it apart. It was done from God, top to bottom. And as man tore Jesus' body from top to bottom, it was so that you and I no longer need crucifixion, sacrifice, or ritual to see God's presence or to see him face to face. We have a perfect sacrifice in Jesus. At the point that he was utterly desolate, God the Father still had not responded. That most intimate of relationships was broken. Jesus knows perfectly well the loss that you have experienced. The cross is the ultimate and the divine me too. There's never a point that you have suffered that Jesus has not suffered and can say with you, I've been there. I know what you're experiencing. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And he mirrored it here when he says, God, I do not see that you are there. I have no external experience that tells me that you're presence, but I commit myself to you. In the same way, no matter what you're suffering, no matter the darkness on your soul, you can trust the God who is there, who will never again turn his back on his children because Jesus took that for you. Finally, what's mirrored in Luke and in the other gospel writers is a word that's only used that three times in Scripture that he breathed his last. Those of you who are familiar with King James will know that he says he gave up the ghost. None of us can claim that. Colossians 1.17 says that in Jesus, all things are held together. That means his own body. There was no taking Jesus' life. As he himself said in John 10.18, no man takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. None of us have that authority of our own, but Jesus did. Jesus, even at his point of death, can say, I breathed out my last. I laid down my life freely. No man takes this from me. This was not a tragedy. This was a triumph. Amen, right? How good is our God? Our last and final, uh, our final scripture is in Mark 14. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and said to them, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he gave it, thanks, he gave it to them for them to drink. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the sign of the new covenant. 
Mike and I, we're going to be dismissing you guys by rows to come up and partake in communion. I, I just want to go over briefly what communion is. It's remembering that sacrifice that we just, uh, that we just spoke of. The nails in the wrist, the thorns on his head. The lashes on his back. And we remember when we take of the bread, we remember two things. One, that it is by his stripes we are healed. But two, now that Jesus' body was broken and risen again, we now take communion as his body. We partake in his body. And that's why we do communion together. Because we're remembering the sacrifice that he made. And because of that sacrifice, we as a body of believers can worship him together in unity. And then we take of the juice, which symbolizes his blood. And when he said, this is my new covenant, take and drink of it. He's essentially saying, because we know with, uh, with Hebrew uh, engagement rituals and, and, and Hebrew tradition that he was essentially saying to his disciples, Will you marry me? Will you be in covenant with me? Will you live a life with me? Will you be with me? Because it is this pure blood that is spilt over you that will enable you to walk through that torn veil into the presence of God. Will you walk with me? Will you be with me? My sacrifice is sufficient. Will you partake in my body? And will you partake in my blood, which is a symbol of the new covenant? Will you live life with me? And us drinking that is us saying, yes, I do. I will live with you. And so we're going to be taking communion together in a final song of worship. Remember your Savior this day, but also remember in a few days. He will be celebrating his resurrection. Amen. Lord, we love you. We remember you. We have nothing to offer you, but everything to receive from you. Pour upon your spirit, Lord. We want you. We desire you, Lord. Dwell in us today as we walk into your new covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen.